Am working now. Yeah, there we go. Great. Brad's just taken my whole intro away from me. Uh, so that cuts about 15 minutes off of the time. Um, yeah. But uh, just to say, it really is a blessing to be here. It's a privilege to be here. Um, if I haven't met you, it would be great to catch up afterwards. Uh, but I'm really excited about the series that we're in. Like, as Brad said, Howard introduced the series Hebrews uh, last week, and he did a really broad overview of the book of Hebrews. Today we get to really dive in and focus in and sort of unpack some really particulars, uh, or some, pack quite a few particulars actually, from chapter 1 through to chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. Um, the reason why I'm so excited about this book is because I love talking about Jesus, right? Just love that. And, and the book of Hebrews is one of those books that theologians would consider to be Christologically rich. In other words, when you look at the book of Hebrews, you can just see the author's heart. It's just to unpack who Jesus is. And he does that to set Jesus up, to compare him to certain things, particularly to the angels, to Moses, to the prophets, and to the old covenant. And he goes, Jesus is just so much greater and the reason why he does that, as Howard shared last week, was to encourage the Hebrew uh, receivers of this letter to be steadfast in their faith. They were being challenged, they were being tried and tempted and tested to sort of like move away from Jesus and renounce him. And the author's writing to them to say, listen, don't give up. Jesus is greater than anything you can go back to. One of the other reasons why I'm so excited is I, I just think we live in a world, and you'll know this, it's so narcissistic and self-centered, right? We live in a world um, that's, just focused, that's just focused on the here and the now. You know, we live in a world where there's so much passion and desire and zeal for more stuff, more money, more power, more authority, more this, more control, more comfort. And we don't really realize it, but I think if we're not careful as Christians, we can get influenced and infected by that. And that sort of mentality can creep in to the church. We get influenced, by the world, and, and slowly our gaze shifts away from Jesus to political ideologies, to certain structures and schemes of men to help fix things, and we lose sight of Jesus if we allow that to happen. Somewhere along the line, our lives can become about us and about what we can get out of our faith, about what Jesus can do for me and what the church can do for me, and actually our faith becomes idol worship because it's all about what I can get, sort of from that vending machine. Jesus becomes this genie. That when we rub the bottle the right way, he pops out and grants us what we want. And if we're not careful, I think somewhere along the line, we can, we can fall in love with the gift more than we fall in love with the gift giver. I think that's something that's really on my heart. We, just, we need to start talking about Jesus again. And we need, we need to come back to that place where we're like overwhelmed with Jesus. We need to refocus. We need to return to our first love. Fall in love with Jesus over and over again. Be awed by him. Um, be consumed by him, fall at his feet as John did, with reverent fear and wonder. I think for a lot of us, perhaps, we need to experience that for the first time. I think when the author to the Hebrews wrote this letter, that perhaps happened for people when he contrasted Jesus with the things that they sort of held so dear. And as we go through the book of Hebrews, I trust the Holy Spirit's going to challenge us, especially in this section, as we elevate Jesus to be overwhelmed with Jesus again. I'm trusting that that's what's going to happen in our hearts as we as we do this. So we're going to read together. We're going to read a chunk. Um, we're, going to, we're going to break this chunk of passage up into three parts, which I mentioned just now. We're going to spend more time on the first part, so don't panic, right? When time's almost done and we haven't got to point two and three, that's going to fly. Point one is going to be where we spend most of our time. But let's read together. Ro Hebrews, Romans. Hebrews chapter one, 
Uh, all the way through to chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. Here's what the author says. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He, who, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful world. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So He has become much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be His father and He will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking to the angels or about the angels, he, makes, he says this, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. <clears throat> but about his son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says in the beginning, The Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same. And your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Then he says this. He sort of wraps this up with this application. He says, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape? How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? It's quite a huge chunk of scripture and incredibly rich, but we're going to break it up like this. Point one, Jesus. Who is Jesus? Point two, Jesus and the angels. Point three, the warning. Right, that's how we're going to unpack this this morning. So firstly, who is Jesus? I think it's one of the most important questions anybody could ever ask somebody. And the most important question you can ever answer. Right? It's like the most profound question to ask and to answer in somebody's life. Everything hangs on whether you answer that question correctly or not. It's the same question Jesus asked his disciples and Peter got it right. He said, Lord, you are the anointed one. You are the holy one of God. That's who you are. And then Jesus says back to him, you've got this right, but I want you to know something significant. You answered that correctly correctly. Because God in heaven revealed that to you. This has not been revealed to you by any man. Because no man can know that. The things of God have been known to us, made known to us through the Holy Spirit. And Peter knew that because God revealed it to him. And so this morning as we unpack this, I just really want us to be able to focus on the fact that Jesus is revealed to us through the Spirit. That God reveals him to us. And that that's exactly what we need God to do for us. In order to get back to a place where we're in awe and reverence of Jesus again. We need to get an accurate perspective of him. Right? So, the first three verses, in the first three verses, the author does something absolutely amazing. He sort of gives eight, eight brief but profoundly packed phrases that highlight the supremacy of Jesus and his uniqueness and his glory and his greatness. 
And together, what they do when you read this, he's setting Jesus up to compare him to something. But he's setting Jesus up and he goes, in all of these eight phrases, Jesus, he explains, is priest, prophet, and king. See, before Jesus, there were kings, there were prophets, and there were priests. But in Jesus, all three of those come together. And that's what he does with these eight phrases. But the first one is this. He says this. He says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways, but in these days, he's spoken to us through his son. But what he's saying there, right, the first thing he's saying, the reason why Jesus is so superior to anything and everyone else is because in Jesus, the complete revelation of God is seen. When you read the Old Testament and you read um, Genesis and you see the amazing story of creation unfolding, you get a glimpse of who God is. You get a glimpse of His power. You get a glimpse of His majesty. When, when you read about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you see God's sovereignty. You see His ability to select and to choose and to work through broken humans to establish His will. You get an idea of how great God is. Then you get the thundering and the giving of the law, and it's mediated through angels, and, and, and you see the perfection of God, and the excellence of God, and the standards of God. You see all of that stuff. The singing of the psalmist. You see the beauty of God and His desire for instruments and making a joyful noise. You, know? you see all of that. You see the beauty of God exalted in creation and, and, and the wisdom of the prophets and the Proverbs. You see the tenderness and delicateness of God in Song of Songs you know, and the Song of Solomon. You, you see the marvelous mysteries of the prophetic writings, Ezekiel and Daniel. And all of those things are God and they're God's word, but not one of those things fully reveals who God is. There's this progressive revelation that happens throughout the Old Testament and it all builds up to the coming of Jesus. And in Jesus, when you open up the passages of the New Testament and you read the Gospels, all those syllables and vowels and words that are spoken by God throughout the Old Testament come into one full sermon in the person of Jesus. He is the full revelation of who God is to us. There is nothing greater. There's nothing more. You can get glimpses of the beauty and the majesty of God throughout the pages of the Old Testament. But when you go to Jesus and you unpack the Gospels, that's where you see God in complete revelation to us. God's word to man has been fully revealed and spoken to us in Jesus. There's nothing more to be added than the person of Jesus. And in that way, Jesus is just so much more superior than anything we could know. But then, then the author moves on. He says, And in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he's appointed heir of all things. What he's saying here is this. Jesus has inherited everything. Everything belongs to him. Everything in the seen and the unseen realm, everything in the physical and the spiritual realm, everything in the known universe, whether seen or unseen, belongs to Jesus. He's the inheritor of all those things. It belongs to Him. A theologian by the name of Leon Morris said this, this, this title, heir of all things, is a title of dignity. And it shows that Christ is in the supreme place and is owner of the universe. He's exalted to the highest place in heaven, and after his work on earth here is done, right? he did not mark something new. He did not move into a new place, but he moved into a place that was always his, exalted to where he has always been, and that's Lord of all. So the author is trying to help you to understand that there is nothing that doesn't belong to Jesus. Everything seen and unseen is him. And just an aside here, 
I think as Christians, we need to realize that we are co-heirs with Christ. The amazing thing about being in Jesus is that we are drawn up into the heavenlies with Him, and we are seated with Him, and we are made higher than the angels, God's Word says, because we're in Christ. And we're going to get to share in that inheritance with Him one day. And we need to know that. We, we need to know that because that causes us to rejoice and to hold fast to this faith that we have. The next thing the author says is this, and through whom he also made the universe. Jesus does not just inherit it all. It is through him that all of it was made. In the Greek text, the word through whom he made the universe translates literally into through whom he made the ages. Right? And it carries this idea that Jesus not only created things, but he created space and time. Everything that exists that we know, Jesus created. It means that he's Lord over time. He's Lord over all this space that exists. In John, 1 chapter, in John chapter 1 verse 3, it asserts this truth. It says this, All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that is created. Nothing. Or Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 11. He says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. And in him all things hold together. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus stands at the end of the future and he stands right at the beginning of the past. That's what the author is trying to say. That's what he's declaring about who Jesus is. He's the creator of all things. This, this comes from his hand. He's the originator of everything. The processes of life. Nothing that has begun has begun apart from Jesus. I remember um, at the end of last year, I, I don't know if it was unfortunate or fortunate, but I went on a, on a hike in the Vittels with Howard and his family. Right? Um, and it was one of the most excruciatingly difficult hikes I've ever done, but also one of the most exquisitely beautiful hikes I've ever done. If you've ever done it, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you ever get an opportunity to do it, do it. Right? But... I just remember being in this place, surrounded by nature. One of the most exciting and one of the most beautiful moments for me was at the end of the first day. You hike up this mountain, which is it's really high. And you get to the top, and your legs are broken. You've been walking the whole day. And you get to sit on the edge of this precipice of this cliff. And you get to watch the sunset. But in this moment, there was not a breath of wind. It was like 33 degrees. And... There was just dust in the sky, so when the sun set, it was just hues of orange and yellow and gold and purple and blue. And far off in the distance, you could just make out the table of Table Mountain. It was probably one of my best hiking moments ever. Right, and I sat in, I drank this thing in, and I was over. It's really difficult not to feel close to God in a place like that. It's really difficult not to. I just remember thinking, God, you're amazing. I remember thinking words can't describe, no matter how aptly I use the, the semantics we have at our disposal, nothing can actually describe what that moment was really like. Nothing can actually describe that. And I just I thought this. If, if gazing upon God's creation and His beauty and the things that He's created causes me to be awestruck and, you know, sitting with a mouthful of teeth, how much more wonderful should it be when we gaze upon Jesus, who's the creator of it all, the originator of it all, and the sustainer of it all. I think so often we're awed and we're taken aback by the beauty of creation. But again, we sit in that place where we appreciate the gift more than we appreciate the gift giver. 
And this is what the author is trying to say. Hey, look around you and appreciate what you see. But just remember this. Jesus made it all. Jesus made it all. See, creation reveals the invisible attributes and qualities of God, His eternal power and His divine nature. That's what it says in Romans chapter 1. But Jesus is the creator of it all. The author goes on to say that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of His nature. And that's the two things that he unpacks next. He says, the sun is the radiance of the glory of God. What does that mean? Well, you have to understand the glory of God first. And to put it simply, the glory of God is this. It is all the attributes of God that is the glory of God. Right? If we could list them all, it's the sum total of the attributes of God. That is what the glory of God is. If we could, we could list them, He's all-powerful, He's all-knowing, He's ever-present, all the time, 100% everywhere, at the beginning of the past, at the end of the future, and here right now, and somewhere else, and some, God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's righteous. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's loving. He's just. He's kind. He's got perfect knowledge, perfect wisdom. He's perfect in every way. And we could just go on and on. The sum total of the attributes of God are the glory of God. Right? And Jesus is the brightness and the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Basically, what that phrase is supposed to help you to picture is the rays of an overcast day today. But it helps you to picture the idea of the rays from the sun coming to earth. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory in the sense that the rays are the sun. You can't separate the rays from the sun. But all that we know about the sun is communicated to us by the rays. But when you look and you try to look and you try and eyeball the sun when it's a hot sunny day, you will burn your retinas and corneas out in split seconds. But all that we know of the sun, its glory and its power and its ferocity is communicated to us by the rays. And in that sense, all that we know about God and all that God is and all that is revealed to us by God and His Glory is known to us through the shining forth of Jesus. He's the radiance of God's glory. You can't separate light from radiance. You can't separate the radiance from the light. Where there's light, there's radiance. Where there's radiance, there's light. The two go together. In other words, Jesus is the shining forth of all that God is. That's what it means by He's the radiance of God's glory. All that God wants us to know and experience about Him is known by us through the person of Jesus Christ. It's the radiance of the glory of God. Then the author says He's the exact representation of God's being. The Greek word, the original word, exact representation, refers to an engraved character that you'd have on a signet ring or on a sort of like a press, like a die. And it's like back in the days, if, if, um, if you wanted to know that a letter was really, really important, you'd drip some wax as a seal, and then someone of importance would have a ring that they would then press into the wax and pull it out, and it would leave an impression. And when you saw that impression, you didn't have to know what the ring looked like. You knew what the ring looked like because of the impression on the wax. And so when, when the author says that he is the exact representation, what he's speaking about is he's saying, when you see Jesus, you see God. Why? Because Jesus is God. That's what he's saying. That's who Jesus is. He's like a press. A friend of mine is a fitter and turner. He makes tools and he makes parts for car engines and all that sort of stuff. And they've got like significantly heavy-duty machinery. The one machine, I think, is 500-ton press. 
And all it does is it takes a piece of metal like this, that's that thick, that's flat, and it puts it over a, like a hollow die, and the press comes down, and you pull it out, and you've got like an engine block, or part of an engine block, or you've got this tool or that tool. And you don't need to know what the dial looks like or what the press looks like. you just got to look at what it creates to understand what it looks like. And that's what the author's trying to communicate here. He says it's exact radiance. And it's not just in nature and in essence. He's an a accurate, true representation of who God is. That's who Jesus is. He's a trustworthy representation of the Father. Jesus told Philip, he says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. In John chapter 14. And in Luke 10, it says, to, to know God, we must know him as revealed to us by the Son. There's no other way to know God. Right? Then the phrase, sustaining all things, right, which is where the author goes to next. He says, he sustains all things by his powerful word. It, it means that Jesus is carrying everything that has been created to its predestined conclusion. He's actively involved in sustaining things. God didn't just create and then step back and not be involved and let it happen by itself. He is actively involved in every single part of creation. And he's bringing it from its beginning and he is sustaining it and he's sustaining it along its journey to its appointed conclusion. Jesus is doing that. He's sustaining it. It refers to his providential governance, that power that he has to govern all things. Right? He's continually upholding everything we know. The earth, as it sits and spins on its 23-degree axis, doesn't actually have an axis. It's just hanging out there in space. Right? Jesus is sustaining that. The fact that we don't fly off of the face of the earth as we move through space at 19 miles a second is because Jesus is sustaining us. Right? The fact that there is a galaxy out there that's continuing to grow, that discovered not so long ago, that's 400 light years across. Jesus sustains that. Right? There was there's just so many different facts, but if, if, if the earth's crust was just 10 foot thicker than what it is today, nothing would survive, nothing would grow. Nothing could be planted, nothing could be harvested, reaped, nothing. There would be no life. Jesus sustains that. The fact that gravity is exactly where it needs to be for us not to float off or to be crushed is because Jesus sustains that. The fact that the sun is just a ball of gas held together by its own gravity is because Jesus sustains that. That's what the author is getting at here. The scripture shows that there's not a single particle, there's not a single atom in the universe that isn't controlled by Jesus and doesn't obey his command. In Psalm 148, it says, Every raindrop, snowflake, gust of wind, lightning bolt goes to where it needs to go at the command of Jesus. Proverbs 16, 33, He directs even the roll of the dice, it says. You can't roll a dice whether it be in a game or doing something maybe you shouldn't be doing. Without Jesus commanding the fall and the role of that dice, he's sovereign. The rise and fall of nations, it says in Job, is his doing and undoing. He determines in advance, it says in Psalm 139, the days that each of us will live. Jesus is in control. And here's the thing that blows my mind. 
He exercises this immense power just by speaking. He sustains it by the word of his power. You see the author's heart for Jesus here. Let's just lift him up to where he belongs. And even these words fall short of the glory of God, the greatness of Jesus. I'm just using words. I'm just using words to describe Jesus. He is greater than what I can describe to you, what I'm describing to you. Oh, man, he sh- it should elevate you beyond anything, him elevate beyond anything and everything. Then the, then the author goes, this, and I, he goes, and I love where he goes to. Because after establishing Jesus as just supreme he hasn't even compared him to anything yet. Just the unpacking of who he is sets us on a course of like fear and reverence. He goes, and then he paid for your sins. This, this being, this supreme being, this one who was and is and always will be, this one who doesn't have a beginning or have no end, he left the glory of heaven to die for you and me. He provided purifications for sin. I think that's just stunning and breathtaking. The Lord God Almighty who could just let go. Just let go and everything would disintegrate. He could let go and everything would just not be. And, and he would be fine. Chooses to leave heaven and the glory of heaven, take the form of a servant, become obedient to death. Not just death, death on the cross for the sake of you and me. Author goes, he's like, this is amazing. The lyrics of the song, Amazing Love, How Can It Be That You, My King, Would Die For Me, just resonate and just so true. God, how could this be? the sustainer of all things. And then lastly, the author says this. He says, and then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Christ sitting at the Father's right hand is an analogy and an expression to help us to understand that Jesus has completed his work. It's done. It's done. It's finished. There's nothing needed. It's a place of intercession. It's a place of power and highest honor. And so he functions there as our king and as our priest and he intercedes for us on our behalf. Old priests back in the day used to go into the Holy of Holies once a year and then they'd have to come out. They'd have to pray for their own purification and cleansing before they went in, otherwise they would die. And then they would repent on behalf of the nation and perform sacrifices in the Holy of Holies on behalf of the nation of Israel. Then they would leave. It was never fully done. Now Jesus taking up that seat at the right hand of the Father means it's done. It's finished and he intercedes and it's a place of highest honor. And because of Jesus, we have now direct access to the throne room of God. That's what he's, that's what he's trying to establish here. It means that he's taken his rightful place as the sovereign ruler of all creation and over everything. Now quickly, as we begin to wrap up, the author then moves to his conclusion. Right? He's done all of this. He's done all of this just to say, and therefore, Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than the angels. If you don't get that he's greater than the angels, you haven't read the first four verses properly. Jesus is greater than the angels. He's the final and complete revelation of God to man. He's the heir of all things, the creator of the universe, the radiance of the glory of God, the manifestation of God's presence and essence, the sustainer of all things, the one who accomplished the cleansing of our sins and now he's seated at the right hand of God. He's all of that and so he's greater than the angels. He says this, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name that he has inherited is superior to these. And you might wonder why he needs to compare Jesus to the angels. But remember, the, the Jewish people were expecting a Messiah, but they weren't expecting what they got. They got something so much better, but they didn't see it. 
And angels were incredibly important to the Hebrew people. You may or may not know, but the, the, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai was mediated through angels. Through the, for lack of a better word, ministry of angels. And so Hebrews as a people also pursued light as the highest ethic. Right? They pursued light. The Greeks pursued knowledge. Romans pursued glory. Hebrews pursued light. And when angels sh showed up, they came gloriously lit. And so there was a sense in which Hebrews really valued and loved the angels. And some of them, you can read about in Colossians, even moved to a place where they worshipped angels. They worshipped angels that forsook their relationship with God and worshipped angels. And so the, the authors got to go there because they were being tempted to just see Jesus as another angel. And you might go, I've never done that. I've never thought Jesus was an angel. I've never compared him to an angel. It's really silly. I've always known that he was above. For them, this was a real challenge. And still today, Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses compare Jesus or they say that he is an angel, the, the most supreme angel. They compare him to the likes of Michael and Gabriel, the archangels. But what the author does here is he totally demolishes the idea that Jesus could ever have been an angel because he's so supreme and so glorious. And then the rest from verses 5 through to 14, he, he quotes Old Testament scripture as a way to back up his conclusion that Jesus is greater. If the first four verses didn't give it to you, and then he makes his conclusion, you still don't get it. He goes, well, look at what the Old Testament says about Jesus. To who did the Father say this? To who did the Father give the right to do this? To who did the Father say this? Certainly not the angels. They're just servants who serve and minister. Jesus is king. But still today, I think, though, people are looking for wriggle room in their faith. If we can, if we can slightly undermine the deity of Jesus and the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus, if we can make him an angel or a prophet of great authority, if we can make him a good teacher, if we can minimize him and go, oh, it was, he was just another man, it was unfortunate that he was crucified, we can sort of get away with what we want to when it comes to taking his word or not taking his word. But if he is in fact God and Lord of all, then everything he says and everything he does and everything he asks us to do is stuff that we need to do because he's king of kings and lord of lords. You might say, oh, I've never worshipped an angel, never will worship an angel. And so this really is irrelevant. I've always seen Jesus as greater than the angels. Well, let me just tell you how I think it applies to us today. If the author was writing today, he would say something like this. If Jesus is all of the things mentioned in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1 in Hebrews, then he's most certainly greater than your money and your pursuit of money. Then he's most certainly greater than your pursuit of security and comfort then he's most certainly greater than your favorite sports or sporting event or sporting star. Jesus is most certainly greater than your pursuit of establishing a great business. He's most certainly greater than your pursuit of having a family. He's most certainly greater than your pursuit of self. He's most certainly greater than any politician or any political party or any political ideology. Jesus is most certainly greater than any government or any scheme of man. He's greater than anything. That's how that applies to us today. And so he's deserving of our worship. He's to be prioritized and put first because he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. It always amazes me, I promise we're wrapping up, it always amazes me that people think that just because they haven't placed in their life in front of Jesus what other people have done, that they themselves haven't prioritized something else over Jesus. In other words, I might put my family before Jesus and you think, I haven't done that, so there's nothing in my life that's before Jesus, but it could be your love of money. It could be your desire for power. It could even be your perfect idea of what church should be like and how worship should be done. 
And here's the principle that I think applies to all of us. It doesn't matter what it is. Whatever it is in your life that you put in front of Jesus and prioritize over him, that thing, no matter how inherently good it may be in and of itself, will always lead you away from Jesus if you prioritize it over him. It will always draw your attention away and cause you to shift your gaze from Jesus. And if you're not careful, you'll drift away, which is how the author ends. He says, in light of all of this, he has the practical application. Be careful. My conclusion is this, Jesus is greater. My application to you is pay attention and be careful. He says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we don't drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? The Greek word to, to pay attention means literally to turn your mind to, to attend to, to be attentive, to apply yourself to something, to focus on this thing. And if you don't, you'll drift away. And, and, and the image that he gives is, is of um, someone drifting in water that is like tumultuous and just, it's, there's just ups and downs and crashing the waves and white water. It's as, it's as if like, you know, you're looking out over the Cape of Storms in winter when one of the massive storms come through and there's just everything everywhere and you're busy drowning and a boat comes past and it's the salvation of God and it's the opportunity to jump on board and you hear this message and you see Jesus and Jesus is revealed to you and you hear teaching from the scriptures and the Holy Spirit is causing you to yearn for this thing but you're focused on a piece of driftwood drifting there and you're like, oh, that looks nice. Right? Or you're worried about what you're wearing. Or you're worried about the fact that you're not a good swimmer. Or you're worried about the fact that the water's too cold. And so your attention is caused to go somewhere else. And here's the salvation of God in front of you. But slowly but surely, if you don't give yourself attention to this or attention to that, it's going to drift. And you're going to drift. And you're going to drift. And you're going to drift. And we can sometimes lie to ourselves and think, I will just put Jesus off here because it's quite easy to just grab here. But if you've ever been caught in a current in the ocean, you know. You can be close to a boat and then in seconds far away and it's too late. So that's what the author is saying. He's saying, don't take this thing lightly. Pay attention to this thing. Ignoring the salvation of Jesus is the danger. That's what's dangerous. A casual attitude towards the gospel is not faith at all. Right? It's contempt for what is the most beautiful thing ever to have been revealed to us. And it leads inevitably to to, to drifting away. And I think this is my last point. The currents that are being generated by current culture are huge. And I think as God's people, remember Jesus serves as an anchor for our souls. We need to anchor down and love Jesus and not get caught up in the things of this world and swept away. Right? That's the danger that is there for us if we don't elevate Jesus to his right place in our lives. And we need to stir each other up and encourage each other to love him more. Let me pray for us. Yeah, Lord Jesus, it just it really isn't adequate to try and use words to describe your greatness and your glory and how wonderful it is to know you, to be called sons and daughters, to know that we have a part in inheritance that is yours, to know that we're seated with you in heavenly realms, to know that, Lord Jesus, one day we will sit next to you and we will inherit what is rightfully yours to inherit. That Jesus, you look down upon us and after having created everything and sustaining all things, even to this moment in time, 
to know that that is who you are, and yet you call us into your presence so freely that you made a way for us, Lord, is amazing. And we just want to say we love you, Jesus. We honor you, Lord Jesus. And Father, I pray if there are people in this room this, this morning who need to repent, Lord, who need to come once again to the foot of the throne and just declare your greatness, that that would happen. Lord, that we would be overcome and overwhelmed again by the greatness of who you are. Lord, if there are people in this place who need to give their lives to you, who are in the ocean drifting, Lord, then today may they see that vessel of salvation. May they see Jesus. May they grab on, Lord, with everything they have and never let go. Lord, may they board that ship and know you. Be rescued by you in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, I pray, do that work. Lord, as we go out into the community, as we go out into the rest of this week, the week that lies ahead, God, may we be mouthpieces of God, preaching the good news, telling people about the greatness of Jesus, comparing him and having people understand that he's greater than anything this world has to offer. Lord, for the Hebrews, it was the angels. For us, it's many other things. Pray, give us that ability in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.